Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent radio show. I'm Matt Zemek. He, my co-host, is Sakib Ali, and uh, we have a lot to talk about in the tennis world as we approach the end of the tennis season. Hi, Sakib. Hey, Matt. How are you? All right. I mean, we have uh, the WTA Finals in Singapore to talk about, and we have uh, Roger Federer to talk about after winning his 99th title uh, in Basel, Switzerland. Uh, so no shortage of topics uh, as we as we head to the end of the season. The WTA is still playing in Zhuhai, uh, kind of that odd schedule where the WTA finals really is supposed to be the crown jewel uh, of the end of the season. They precede another tour event with slightly lower-ranked players. It's kind of weird, although it, it needs to be said, Sagib, that in 2019, the WTA calendar has been announced. They're finally going to uh, redo that, and so Zhuhai will not be the last event of the WTA season. Uh, it will be the WTA finals uh, at the end of the season being moved back. So at least they're going to correct that uh, for 2019. But anyway, uh, we have a lot to talk about. So um, let, let's start with those WTA finals in Singapore, uh, having ended uh, uh, the week, previous weekend. And as as we and I as we have talked about privately in, in uh, our DM chats on Twitter and also in our text messaging, which we do in between and around matches, uh, just because we're always talking tennis 24/7, no matter what the platform is. Sakib, uh, we were both struck by how Alina Svitolina, uh, the champion of the WTA Finals, was the last person either one of us expected to win the event. And yet, on the on the WTA Tour in 2018, the unpredictable is exactly what was predictable. So uh, I know that you've had some guests uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, other shows that we do uh, during the year talking WTA tennis. Uh, you had some guests who expressed concern about Spitalina going into the WTA Finals in Singapore. So... Really, what happened? What flipped the script? What turned things around 180 degrees uh, to get Spitalina into the winner's circle uh, in this eight-player event? Uh, it's funny, right? Uh, and we are not alone, like you said. Uh, many tennis pundits and people who even know the sport more than us uh, were very surprised when uh, Alina Svitalina uh, came undefeated and, you know, this coveted year-end championships in Singapore. I don't even know where to start with Matt. You're right, Ed Salmon, you know, who is a known uh, tennis uh, analyst and writer, and he covers uh, the WTA matches. Uh, he was covering the entire Asian swing. So, again, you know, uh, when we, in any sport, when we make projections, predictions, and, you know, it can look the best, look silly, and I'm not saying Ed was off because we were all in the same, pretty much same bandwagon. We didn't expect much from Svetolina as her ear had pretty much deteriorated, and, uh, uh, what was remains was like a coaching relationship that was in the books. She came just, you know, we don't even know what kind of momentum and what, of course, now it's easy to say, but in, the expectations were pretty much nil from uh, anyone who is uh, following, uh, you know, her, her tennis. And uh, there were other issues that Ed spoke about that, you know, uh, she was not in the best of health or in, in terms of, a, you know, a great athlete, uh, international world-class athlete. She may not have the mental stamina because this is the kind of year she's had. And then she comes in, and guess what? She goes undefeated. She runs the table, wins five matches. And Sloane Stevens, uh, the woman she beat in the final, has been a tough out for her. 
in a couple of matches earlier in the year. If, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. And and when uh, and let's even go to the finals. When Sudalina made the final, I really said to myself again. I didn't say you know through a tweet. I said you know what. She did good. She has all the momentum. She can sign off 2018 style, but beating Snow and in the slow conditions of the Singapore uh, indoor court is going to be kind of a tougher task because the only match, uh, the match they played actually earlier in the year was during the American Hartford Swing, and I believe Sloan really got the measure of uh, Satalina in that match. And uh, then beating her in a physically taxing final was uh, pretty much icing on the cake. And now we don't know, you know, if... Uh, who she going to bring on for a coach and a lot of times i think in the last time we also spoke about in the podcast when uh, we were discussing the same topic a lot of times these uh, these quick switches between coaching relationships can bring a sense of freedom to a player again it's uh, easy to badmouth the coach that left the scene but uh, uh, a lot of times in, in, even in team sports like in basketball or other sports a change of regime like a coaching management players come out with more freedom, they express themselves, and they back themselves in, in, in a way that they were not doing it. And, uh, of course, uh, this is a huge win. That doesn't guarantee that she's going to, you know, put up these kind of numbers when 2019 rolls around. But, yeah, this was, like, a phenomenal week. I mean, uh, you, you talk about upset of upsets. She's a world-class player, but even she probably didn't come in with this kind of vision. She came in swinging, and, you know, guess what? She's a champion in Singapore, the last time the events played here. And uh, let me put you uh, on uh, on the other end of uh, you know of this conversation by walking our audiences through the kind of tournament and kind of year Sloane Stevens had because you know she's someone who's become very consistent. She didn't win a major, but uh, you know there's a lot lot of upside for the American. Well, a lot of upside, and and I think it is reasonable to say that Stevens did uh, make some forward steps. In her career this year, uh, the, the the chief forward step was making the final at Roland Garros in Paris uh, this past June. You know, Stevens entered the clay season this year with very few uh, WTA Tour wins in Europe and on a larger level, you know, anywhere away from North America. You know, she had been through 2017. Uh, and also early 2018 when she won Miami, um, she had proven that she can do really well on North American hard courts. You know, get her in Cincinnati or Canada, U.S. Open where she, she won her first major last year. You know, the Indian Wells, Miami swing the, the, or, or earlier this year. You know, North American hard courts, that was fine. That's where she could very easily take care of herself. Uh, but being able to win in Europe or Asia, those have both been difficult. And so by making the final of one of Europe's most prestigious and important tournaments at Roland Garros and then making the final uh, in Asia, in Singapore, where she has done very poorly on the Asian swing in autumn in previous years, you know, she, she showed that she could win uh, in various parts of the world uh, that she didn't have to rely on uh, North American home cooking uh, to do well. So she did move the ball forward, so to speak, in her career by making those two significant finals. Uh, she showed that she was more than just a one-trick pony on North American hard courts. Now the next step for her, though, is to be able to close down some of these matches. You know, she uh, led Simona Hallett by a set 
uh, in the Roland Garros final, but then got worn down as, as things, uh, uh, continued. You know, she, she struck first against Svitolina, uh, in the WTA finals championship match, but she also got worn down, uh, and was not the fresher player in a third set. And it's, it's weird that Stevens, uh, first of all, incredible foot speed, uh, in terms of court coverage and also in terms of being patient within rallies. You know, Stevens, uh, has often shown that you don't have to be aggressive at the start of a point. You, it, it's finding a way to eventually figure out the point. That's, that's, that's the way she often uses to win points. You know, she doesn't necessarily hit a huge serve or she won't go for everything on the return. She's so good at hitting very heavy shots, uh, in sequences. Uh, often using, you know, medium or three-quarter pace at the yeah. start and then using huge pace, you know, well into a rally to get her opponents off balance. You know, she's such a patient player that you would think that in a longer match, she would be fresher toward the end, that her playing style would lend itself toward winning longer matches instead of losing them. Uh, but in these, uh, championship matches at Roland Garros and the WTA finals, she's the one who was on the losing end. So that's one of the things she has to work on, Sakib. And the other thing is simply to try and, uh, get to a point where her floor at tournaments on a weekly basis is higher. Her mm. 2018 season was either way up or way down. You know, she lost in the first round of Wimbledon, uh, lost very early in Australia, but then did really well at Roland Garros. And, you know, she might have gone deeper than the quarterfinals at the U.S. Open if she hadn't been worn down by the miserable uh, humidity and heat. Uh, that really seemed to affect her in a daytime match against Anastasia, Anastasia Sevastova uh, in the quarters. So, I mean, she was up and down all year long. And the, the good part was that when she was good, she made the finals of huge tournaments. But when she wasn't good, she got knocked out early. So this was an improvement over 2017. And, of course, in 2017, Saka, you know, she was injured for basically the whole first half of the year. But nevertheless, this this was a year filled with some important successes, but it's clear that there's still a lot of room for her to improve in 2019. Uh, who, who would you, Matt, who would you compare her in the men's side? I see... When you were talking, I just, uh, again, this is more unprepared and more, uh, you know, on the go. I see her uh, foot speed and her footwork is amazing and she can do a lot of change of pace. Uh, do you see, do you see some Andy Murray in there? Like how she can absorb pace and do change of direction and then she can still unload and she's a great mover. I mean, is that some sort of a valid comparison or you see someone else? I mean, it doesn't have to be a, ATP comparison, but I just thought while you were explaining her game style, I thought uh, that you know the thought did cross my mind. Well, you know, there's the, she she is a classic counterpuncher, so uh, you know viewed through that lens, the Murray comparison works. Also, someone uh, such as David Ferrer. I know that Ferrer is not the player he used to be, but we can we could we could compare Sloan uh, to a certain degree to Ferrer in his prime. But, uh, she, she is like those players, but the infusions of extra pace during a rally, that's, that's something different. And, you know, Murray, Murray couldn't, could, uh, 
get extra pace on his backhand, but not really on his forehand all that consistently. So Sloan is kind of a, 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 a more souped up and aggressive version of Murray in that they're both patient players, but I think Sloan could get a lot more weight uh, on her shots in the middle of a rally, and I'm not exactly sure which uh, contemporary ATP player uh, provides provides a neat comparison there. Um, you know, Zverev also doesn't really hit through the forehand uh, all that convincingly. Uh, team is kind of his own unique creature. You know, especially comfortable on clay. I'm not I'm not sure about how his game translates to other surfaces yet. That's going to be a 2019 mystery. So I'm not sure there's an exact comparison, but uh, in terms of just the counter-punching part, not so much the uh, suddenly aggressive part, you know, after 10, 15 strokes in a rally, but just the counter-punching part, Murray and Ferrer are both uh, legitimate examples. And let's also get honorable mentions to the four uh, ladies who actually won the majors and uh Three of them were in the Singapore finale. Uh, Simona Halep, the world number one, uh, had to pull out just before the tournament started. And uh, uh, I know we've spoken again at length. You know, th- these are topics that, you know, like you said, we are, you know, discussing tennis on many different platforms. Uh, and it seems like uh, I have asked this question, I think. But again, uh, who is your player of the year, uh, Matt? And then uh, for me, it's Simona Halep. And uh, I'm going to take a leaf out of your book just because uh, I think the pressure on her and Caroline Wozniacki for maiden majors was huge. And uh, Simona Halep uh, in somehow has even overshadowed uh, Caroline Wozniacki for not winning the major because she was that player who was walking with the label on her back. I'm the best player who has never won a major. And when she did at Roland Garros, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we would like to think, you know, some sort of floodgates would open even though she did not win any major for the rest of the year, but I still think the monkeys of the back, uh, it was a huge win uh, at a tournament where she's lost two finals before to Maria Sharapova and Yelena Ostapenko. So that was a huge win. And uh, just for, you know, that particular moment, I think she's my player of the year. But again, that would have changed, like you had said before in your Tennis Action article, had Caroline Wozniacki won this uh, season-ending finale, she very well could have been this year-end uh Player of the year, according to you. So just uh, tell us, tell our audience here. You know, the three big uh, stories between uh, Kerber, actually four, even Osaka. So why and you know who are you choosing as your player of the year for WTA? Yeah. So when when evaluating uh, the tennis player of the year, uh, I think that even the, even a casual fan, not not just a diehard, can generally be aware of uh, a few basic uh, reasons for for uh, voting for a player and it starts with the major tournaments you know so on the men's side just as an example it has to be Djokovic because he's won two majors and Nadal and Federer only one and i know that Djokovic didn't really play that much in the first half of the season didn't really play that well but he's been such a dominant uh, force of nature uh, from Wimbledon onward, I think he has swiped Player of the Year from uh, from Nadal and, and Federer. And so in the WTA, it's not as clear-cut because you have four different players who each won a major. So if the majors are even, you know, then you go to a couple of other categories. One is, do you win those second-tier tournaments, the 
premier mandatories, of which there are four, and the premier fives, of which there are five. You know, was there any profound uh, leader, someone who really uh, was ahead of the, the rest of the pack in that regard? Uh, again, right there, it's, it's, it's pretty mixed. You know, Wozniacki uh, won the premier mandatory in Beijing in, in autumn. Halep won a premier five uh, at Montreal. Um, the, the, the various, uh, premier mandatory and premier five winners, uh, were spread out. So that's pretty close. So if you then go to the third category, just, you know, wins and losses and overall consistency of results, I think that's where Halep wins. And that's why, as you said, uh, in referring to articles that I've written at tennisaccent.com on this subject, that's why I felt that Wozniacki or Angelique Kerber needed to win the WTA Finals to pry uh, w- WTA Player of the Year honors from Halep, and they didn't do it. So when we talk about consistent results over the course of the year, not many WTA players were consistent. You know, we talked about Sloan Stevens earlier. Sloan was not uh, an aberration. Sloan was representative of many top WTA players in that they'd have one great tournament that they'd either win or they'd make the final, have a few bad tournaments, then they'd pop up again and and win or make the final, few bad tournaments. Not many players were consistent. Wozniacki, in her defense, I mean, it's not really as though she didn't play good tennis. She was just injured a lot. She was injured at many points. Uh, in 2018, she was injured in Montreal, you know, injured, she was not fully healthy through the U.S. Open, and of course she revealed later on, uh, that in the late summer, uh, she was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, and that didn't come out, uh, until, uh, early October, but, you know, she, so she was playing with that. Earlier in the year, she was playing with a knee injury, uh, so she wasn't able to be her best self all the time. But nevertheless, her she wasn't able to uh, be there to post consistent results throughout the course of 2018 from January in Australia all the way through October. Uh, she was only able to surface at a few points. Angelique Kerber, her claim to consistency was that she made quarterfinals or better at each of the first three majors of the year, Australia, semis, French Open, quarters, uh, and then Wimbledon when she went all the way. But she ran out of gas at the U.S. Open. She lost to Dominika Sibokova uh, in the first week of that tournament. Uh, so that leaves Halep. And Halep uh, wasn't uh, outstanding at uh, Wimbledon or the U.S. Open. So in terms of, like, the four majors, she wasn't as consistent as Kerber was. But in terms of one tour event after another, through Cincinnati in August, she was by far the most consistent player on the WTA Tour. Eight semifinals, ten quarterfinals, through Cincinnati, when she was excellent, Miami and and, uh, Wimbledon were the only two tournaments she played in which she did not get to the quarterfinals. And so no one else on the WTA Tour in 2018 was putting up those consistent results each week. Halep uh, was, I don't have the exact numbers, but she was something like, 46 and 8 through Cincinnati and uh, none of her peers were particularly close. You know, uh, it's Kerber did win Wimbledon and Wozniacki did win the Australian Open, but Halep was stacking together wins and good results at a level that that Kerber and Wozniacki 
weren't quite doing. And uh, you know, in terms of the fourth major winner, Naomi Osaka, won in Indian Wells, won at the U.S. Open, uh, had a solid Asian swing, but she was injured during clay season and, and early grass season. Uh, she she kind of like Wozniacki disappeared for a couple of months on the tour. And with Halep, you really didn't have those disappearances. She is the player who, more than anyone else, was there in the hunt at important tournaments week after week after week. So it's not as though Halep was a lot better than Kerber or Wozniacki, but they were they were both relatively they were all excuse me relatively even in majors all relatively even in Premier 5s and Premier Mandatories. So then when you go to that third category of consistency of results, uh, translating into just plain old wins and losses, Hallett was a more consistent player in that third category. That's why she gets the nod as my choice, uh, as well as yours, for 2018 WTA Player of the Year. And I would also like to mention this uh, since, uh, you know, uh, we talked a lot of tennis here. Simona Halep is also a very grounded champion. I mean, uh, she has a world-class coach, ESPN's uh, commentator, uh, Australian uh, Darren Cahill, uh, who has coached the likes of Leighton Hewitt and Andre Agassi. He's one of the most respected voices out there. And uh, their relationship is pretty, you know, uh, it's been well-documented in, in tennis circles that how much Halep uh, respects Cahill and calls him the boss of the relationship. And uh, we don't want to take a deeper dive here, but at the same time, and that's refreshing, like for a WTA superstar, a world superstar, you know, where players are still giving coach the due respect. And it's not like Cahill doesn't respect, you know, Halep. It's just, for me, it's uh, it's very, it just reaffirms, you know, uh, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, character, you know, and traits that Simona Halep, you know, she's a fighter and uh, a lot of the old school values, you know, get get a nod in, in, in my book. Uh, let's quickly switch gears here. Naomi Osaka, you know, is the newest uh, major winner in tennis, uh, men or women. And uh, we have spoken at length about her talent. She broke through this earlier this year in Indian Wells, which is considered by many the fifth major. Uh, she was pretty clinical there. And then uh, it took her a while. Uh, you know, she had she had her moments. She beat Serena Williams in Miami. And, uh, uh, you know, did you see that win coming? I know we've talked about that, and uh, and and more importantly, what has she done since? Because uh, there was an Asian swing pressure where she, you know she's uh, from Japan and she wanted to honor those uh, tournaments, and uh, she was a big draw. It looks like she seemed pretty winded, but she you know made a deep run in you know a couple of those tournaments. Uh, the, she also reminded me of Marat Safin once in 2021 the U.S. Open. A week later, he was playing Tashkent. And uh, similarly, Osaka had a very busy schedule. And uh, I just want your thoughts uh, on uh, this, uh, you know, her post-US Open win, because a lot of times once a player reaches or makes that immense breakthrough, it's hard to stay focused for, you know, for a young person for, say, the next few tournaments. But she was the utmost, utmost professional. And uh, yeah, just walk us, uh, walk us the audience through that one and how you measure her post-US Open year leading up to Singapore. Well, so let's let's just go over those results. First of all, she made the final in Tokyo, uh home nation tournament. She lost to Karolina Pliskova, who uh made the semifinal round of the WTA finals for the second straight year and is, has been a fixture uh in the top eight of the of the women's rankings uh for the last 
two years. So, you know, no, nothing wrong, you know, that totally respectable loss there and uh, in the final. And then in Beijing, uh, the final premier mandatory of the year, she made the semis and lost to Sevastova, when we mentioned earlier, the person who beat Sloan Stevens in the U.S. Open quarterfinals. Uh, she lost that match, and her back, her back was tight during that match. And, you know, she uh, had to retire from her final, from her last WTA finals match against Kiki Bertens, uh, also uh, with physical discomfort. So, you know, she dragged her body through uh, the autumnal swing of the year and was still able to post solid results. So that, that shows you how, you know, at her young age, uh, you know, just, just turned 20, uh, how, how much of a fighter, uh, she already is. And, and, you know, when you, when you think about, when you use the word fighter, it's easy to limit the scope of reference or application. You know, it's easy to turn the word fighter into someone who, you know, is just kind of scraps and claws and, and wins ugly matches. You know, the person who, you know, well, what's a good example? Like, well, from the past, Arancha Sanchez Vicario, you know, someone who just runs down every ball and just tries a little bit harder than most of her opponents and, and gets really far on on effort and, and intensity and focus and not making mistakes. It's easy to pigeonhole an, a player in tennis or in any sport, you know, through that prism of, oh, wow, look at how hard she tries and look at how much she fights. And to think that that is the only way uh, to, to view the, uh, ter- the term fighter. Well, it can refer to the shot makers as well. You know, Roger Federer fights, you know, on the same level that Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal do. It's just that his emotions are different. His playing style is different. But, oh, yes, he fights, you know, pretty much on the same level. I mean, I would say that Nadal fights a little bit better, but Federer fights incredibly well to to have stayed this relevant on tour uh, at age 37. But the larger point is shot makers or artistic players or players with a big serve, they can all be fighters just as much as the grinders, you know, the people who get – who focus on their work rate, who focus on their effort level. So I think that's the thing that, that strikes me about Osaka is that she really do, has learned at her young age how to fight, not just how to hit shots, not just how to serve well, and that's why you have such a complete player. Obviously, she um, will need to try to, to stay healthy on a more consistent basis uh, for whole seasons. You know, that, that is something that she and her camp, uh, will try to work in terms of developing a little more stamina and an easier way of playing, uh, for her body in 2019. But in terms of knowing how to compete, in terms of knowing how, uh, to rise up in critical moments, you know, she has learned that at her young age. The autumn swing really showed that. And what also showed that, Sakib, is that, uh, in her U.S. Open run, she lost only one set. You know, she 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 <laughs> played in these brutally oppressive conditions, and yet, despite that withering heat and humidity in New York for two weeks, she was mowing down the competition. And when she was in a different kind of heat, the heat of the moment in that controversial 
U.S. Open final against Serena Williams with the crowd booing and Serena and chair umpire Carlos Ramos going at it, she was unflappable. She was calmly and coolly looking in to the eye of that emotional hurricane from the other side of the net, and she didn't flinch. She calmly served out that match and took care of business with a level of composure far beyond her years. And so knowing how to compete, not just how to hit a tennis ball, uh, that, that showed just how much uh, Naomi, Osaki, Naomi Osaka has evolved in a very short period of time. So she's a fighter, not just a shot maker. There is, you know, that, that velvet glove, but there's an iron fist below it, and that really shows the kind of player she's, she has emerged into. Uh, very well said. That was a typical uh, Zemeck special, where I'm sure uh, the listeners here would, you know, uh, uh, you know, take uh, great pleasure in that analysis. Uh, let's uh, you know, talk about the men, and especially let's still uh, stay in the territory of uh, Japan. Uh, we all know Osaka, you know, was talented, and uh, it was only, you know, a matter of time when she would, you know, play a big match at a major. Of course, you know, she won it now. It's history. But Kei Nishikori, you know, some, someone who's, who you have written about, I've talked about in the podcast, remains, you know, uh, the big tennis player from Japan. I, I mean, I would just want to add my Nishikori story, and then, you know, we can make it more of a dialogue. Uh, in 2012, uh, I went with one of my friends, actually Anand, who's spoken here in tennis and cricket, uh, to the Newport Championships, and we saw Nishikori play Indiana's Rajiv Ram, and on those fast, low-bouncing grass courts, Ram had the uh, better. He won the tournament that year, and Anand was very highly, um, you know, he had high opinion of uh, K. Nishikori. He was highly praising him, and I didn't, I, you know, I had followed tennis a lot, and I had been wrong many times, and I was very wrong that day. I, I was not too impressed with Kay. And then, of course, uh, two years later, he played, he caught my eye when he played uh, Rafael Nadal in a very closely contested uh, day quarterfinal in Australian Open in Melbourne. And he came, you know, within sets of, within points of taking the match into five. And then I said, okay, right, it's not the same guy I saw uh, a few years ago in Newport. And, of course, in the, in the meantime, he had worked with Brad Gilbert, you know, and then uh, he was making his, you know, move with Grigor Timotrov and uh, Milos Shaunic, as uh, they are famously called the Lost Gen boys due to our uh, colleague at Tennis and Action, uh, Andrew Burton, who's done pretty much a thesis on, you know, different age groups, and I think we had that show a few weeks ago. So, yeah, Nishikori is someone, you know, who's very intriguing, very talented, and also, Matt, uh, I would like to add, I met a Japanese uh, reporter last year in Miami, and she told me the rise of Nishikori was something unseen in Japanese tennis. Before Nishikori, there was Shuzo Matsuoka and two other players. But when Nishikori made that run to the U.S. Open final, uh, you know, it became a full-time career for that lady, you know, who was covering tennis on and off. She said a lot of TV networks started covering all tennis tournaments, and there were like a flock of tennis journalists who started covering, just started following K all over the world, and that became a full-time job, and that's how huge this guy is. And he's a very humble, you know, grounded, you know, superstar. Uh, you know, I think outside of Federer, he probably is the biggest draw in Asia. I mean, no one else gets that kind of, you know, sponsorships, and, you know, I'm sure Nadal and Djokovic are huge in their own right. But I just get a feeling that, you know, Nishikori is someone, you know, who really, I think sometimes Western markets don't understand the pressure this guy has, and then, and guess what, you know, uh, I'm sure you're going to talk about the kind of fear he's had, he's slowly coming into his own, and now he's 
uh, you know, looks like he's going to qualify for the World Tour Finals again. He's coming in with an injury uh, filled year uh, the previous year. Started the year slowly, Matt. So what do you think of, you know, uh, Kenny Shikori's game and how he's transformed his year into a very steady year? Of course, there's a stat that needs to be corrected. He's lost quite a few finals, but, you know, it's not for the lack of trying. It's not for lack of trying at all. And, uh, you know, when, when you look at Kay Nishikori's game, it is a relatively complete game except for one thing, and that is the serve. Um, you know, he, he, in terms of ground strokes, in terms of his return game, in terms of his court coverage, in terms of his stamina, you know, he has a great record in deciding sets, third sets in best of three, fifth sets in best of five, uh, he checks off so many boxes for a great tennis player, and it's that serve, which is the one thing that holds him back a little bit from getting to that top tier. So, you know, it's it's not as though uh, he has a, a lot of different weaknesses. It really is one thing more than anything else, uh, which keeps him from attaining you know the level of the of the big three. Uh, and and so, it, it, through viewed through that prism, it's it's not as though his career uh, is a mystery. It's just that he's missing that one piece, and he really makes a, a lot of use with everything else in his game. And to refer to um, the past few months, you know, he has been one of the more consistent players on tour. You know, Djokovic is the dominant player on tour, and uh, you know, Federer is still going deep in tournaments that he plays. But Nishikori made the final in Tokyo. Uh, he played a very high-quality quarterfinal against Federer at the Shanghai Masters. Uh, as we record this podcast, uh, Nishikori is preparing to play Federer in the Bercy Paris quarterfinals. Now, obviously, people who are listening to the show will know how that match turned out, and they will also know how the Bercy semifinals on Saturday morning turned out. But uh, Nishikori w- committed just one forehand error in his win in Paris over Kevin Anderson. Anderson, uh, the number seven seed, he's going to be in the ATP Finals. He is the Wimbledon runner-up this year. Nishikori made him look very average uh, with, a, with a stunning performance, hardly any mistakes. So Nishikori has played a lot of good tennis uh, at, in autumn and also uh, at the U.S. Open where he made the semifinals. Um, you know, there, he has been posting a lot of good results. And, you know, we, we talk about Federer a lot for all the obvious and legitimate reasons. And one of the things that you and I have both commented on about Federer, uh, over the years, and I mean, I've, I've learned, uh, you know, how, how you think about Federer and, and, and you've been able to learn how I think about Federer Sakib. You know, one of the things that, was clear about Federer's career when Djokovic was dominating the tour in 2014, 2015, and early 2016. The basic verdict on Federer is that it wasn't as though his tennis was suffering. He was playing a lot of really good tennis. It's just that he always ran into Djokovic uh, in the final, and Djokovic was the closer, you know, the guy who would shut the door and cause Federer to finish second, or in some cases fourth in the semifinals. And so I think that Nishikori is getting to that place where, you know, there's usually Djokovic there to stop him. You know, Djokovic stopped him in the U.S. Open semifinals. Djokovic stopped him in the Wimbledon quarterfinals. 
you know, it, and so Nishikori, for all the, the uh, tour finals that, that he loses and, and for all the big matches that he's unable to win, he's in that spot, Sakib, where if he can get that one lucky break, you know, if someone else in his same half of the draw can knock off Djokovic in a quarterfinal, and I know that that's going to be very hard to, ha- to, to pull off, but if it does happen, you know, Nishikori could be in that position you know, to finally win a first major title in 2010. He, he, he is playing well enough to get to that point, but will he get that break? You know, I'm not sure that he is ready to beat Djokovic in a, you know, all chips on the table kind of match at a major tournament in 2019. Uh, but if he gets that one little bit of help, that one little break, you know, he's good enough to beat everybody else in a tournament right now. Uh, not many people are playing better than he is. That's a lot of confidence there, and I, I, I don't doubt the talent of Kenny Shikori, but I was going to say the same thing. Uh, he needs the luck of the draw. Like Federer won uh, Roland Garros uh, when Robin Soderling knocked out uh, Rafael Nadal. I think, uh, uh, in my opinion, Shikori's best chance to win a major is at US Open because he's that's his most consistent slam. He's a pretty good clay court player too. So, but but I think in a best of five, there are like few players who can get hard and like you mentioned, Nishikori not having a serve can be his undoing because, you know, he, he breaks her but then he also gets broken a lot. And Novak is definitely, you know, a matchup from hell because he just does everything K does a lot better or a little better. Uh but there are a few other players I think who have just more firepower. Uh but Nishikori is fit and uh, you know he surprised me with this comeback. I thought he was playing solid but now he's playing very consistent. And this could be like the onset of, you know, a very solid 2019. Of course, uh, health should be on his side because he's someone who's a perennially injured guy and uh, injuries are pretty frustrating at this level. So let me switch gears now. Roger Federer won his ninth hometown title in Basel, Switzerland. Uh, That makes him at 98, uh, you know, 99 titles. So he's still, you know, looking for that... uh, 100th title, he would be now, like he said himself, every time he plays, you know, he, he will, you know, he would have a chance to win number 100. But, uh, you mentioned something great about, uh, Djokovic and Federer, you know, the dynamic of the rivalry when Federer was the only guy who was challenging Djokovic when he was playing some of his best tennis, or maybe some of the best tennis of all time. And Federer did have a good record against him in the best of three format, but it's the majors where he lost like those four matches in the span of like two and a half years. Uh, so I know Matt, you've written a lot about Federer, and this was again not intended, but let's take uh, let's take this conversation slightly, you know, uh, on that route and on hypothetical analysis. Uh, you think if Federer had won the 2014 Wimbledon when he came back from 5-2 down in the fourth set, you think the career graphs would have slightly looked different, or at least the rivalry, which has uh, you know favored Novak Djokovic in the last uh, few years of uh, their head-to-head, because Djokovic clearly has been the absolute standard. You think that was one match that slipped away, or you think the 2015 U.S. Open is the one where Federer dictated but just couldn't get the deal done, and Djokovic wasn't playing as clinical, but he played really clutch tennis when he was behind. So what's your take of the two matches? Which match could have, you know, at least added more context to this already legendary, you know, uh, duel between these two players? Well, if you're, a- if you're asking me which is the more significant match in terms of how it changed the arcs 
of these two careers, it's definitely 2014 Wimbledon. Because if you recall, uh, Novak Djokovic, you know, had just had he, he hired Boris Becker as his coach several months earlier, and at, and in the 2014 Australian Open, uh, Djokovic uh, was upset by Stan Wawrinka in the quarterfinals, and Wawrinka went on to win his first major uh, at age 28. And so after that loss to Wawrinka. In the Australian Open quarterfinals, uh, I was one of many people in the tennis community who thought, "Yep, we all we all knew it. Boris Becker's not going to work out as Djokovic's coach." You know, because and for those who aren't aware, Boris Becker has, had been commenting on television on the BBC for several years, and he was to tennis broadcasting what Magic Johnson was to uh, NBA television analysis. Uh, here in the United States, he was the guy who would say the most obvious thing, you know, the thing that everyone else knew, and, and you know, you didn't really have to probe or think very deeply about anything that he said. And so, you know, seeing Becker being so obvious in his BBC uh, television commentary and also in his tweets, you know, you know, everyone on tennis Twitter in 2014 you know, would always joke about how late Boris Becker was to every important issue or debate in tennis. You know, because of that Twitter reputation and that television reputation, you know, so many of us, myself very much included, uh, thought that, you know, why did Djokovic hire him? You know, what what was the possible point? And so when, when uh, you know, so Djokovic lost to Vavrinka, he then lost to Nadal in the 2014 Roland Garros final, same as it always was. Uh, so then he came to Wimbledon, and you know, at, so at that point, Djokovic, you know, he was the best player in the world, but he was not the best player in the world while winning a bunch of majors. Djokovic had become, at that point, four years ago, he was the Yvonne Lendl of the current era, the guy who would make a ton of major finals, but who would lose most of them. You know, at Lendl's record in major finals was eight and eleven. You know, so he made nineteen of them. That was the great part, but he he won only eight. That was that was the disappointing part. And so Djokovic was in that space in 2014. And so when you when you look back at that 2014 Wimbledon final, the fact that Djokovic, who you know as you said, blew the five-two lead in the fourth set to to go, and he had to go five, he then was serving at break point down at three-three in that fifth set. And if he had not saved that break point, you know, it probably would have been curtains because Federer, you know, was serving like a demon at at that time in the match. Uh, probably would have been able to close it out, would have had an adrenaline rush. But Djokovic saved that break point, uh, and he then played a brilliant return game uh, shortly later uh, to to close out the match. And when when, when Djokovic won that particular Wimbledon, and he won that final. Against Federer, you know, remember that he had lost the 2012 Wimbledon semis to Federer, so that was his first win over Federer uh, on center court Wimbledon. You know, that match gave him so much confidence for the future, and really, I think that match is what fueled him for his incredible 2015 season, in which he went uh, 27 and one at the four major tournaments, and then won the Novak Slam four straight major titles from Wimbledon 2015 
through Roland Garros 2016. I think that that 2014 Wimbledon final removed that burden from Djokovic as the player who couldn't finish off great tournaments in finals. That removed the Lendl label from him, and it also cemented his relationship with Boris Becker, the two of them, and Marian Vida, uh, who has been uh, Djokovic's coaching mainstay all these years. You know, that really solidified Djokovic's coaching situation uh, and gave him the stability and total trust that he needed to be the great player he was in 2015. So that is the match which has the much larger reach through tennis history and this era. The 2015 U.S. Open final, if you recall, Sakib, that match was delayed by rain. You know, the, the U.S. Open did not yet have the roof over Arthur Ashe Stadium. It had the, the surrounding structure, but it didn't have the actual roof. Uh, 2016 was the first year in which the, the roof was in operation. So that match was delayed uh, three or four hours by rain. And after a tournament with dry and quick conditions, that, that final was played in slower, more humid conditions. Uh, and that is something which hurt Federer uh, against Djokovic. Um, so, you know, that that's not a match which got away uh, f- from Federer. Um, the, the, that, that Wimbledon final... Uh, in terms of the Federer Djokovic rivalry, is the one that had the much bigger consequences. Hmm. Well said. So and Novak Djokovic, you know, when this uh, show is released, would return to world number one once again. Again, it was looking pretty, pretty much, you know, a formality because Nadal was having health issues post US Open, and Djokovic couldn't lose a set now. And guess what? Now Nadal has withdrawn, uh, as we record this podcast, a couple of days ago. And uh, Novak Djokovic, when the new rankings come out on Monday, would be number one, and that will make him the second player, I think, after Marat Safin, who was ranked outside the top 20, and uh, and then, you know, ended the year. Of course, Safin, you know, didn't end the year, but he reached the summit, uh, you know, which is the number one ranking. So that's a pretty impressive turnaround from Djokovic. But this also tells you, you know, the kind of uh, consistency these top men uh, have shown over the last five, six years, they keep defying, you know, the law of averages in sports, especially in tennis. I've followed the sport like you for 32 years, and a lot of times, I mean, it's not like, I'm not saying we shouldn't write these guys off because that's what making predictions and conversations is, but we do at, do this at our own peril because these guys keep coming back. And Djokovic, you know, like we've spoken so many times, uh, did not look even a pale shadow of the guy who he is right now, and now, you know, he has reset the conversation and how good he can be again and uh, the challenges are there. But, uh, you know, his uh, performance in Shanghai is uh, has to be pretty worrisome news for everyone uh, on the men's tour uh, right now. Don't you think so? Well, you know, what, what, what stands out about Djokovic, uh, not the fact that he's playing excellent tennis, that's not, not like a new observation or an original observation, What's amazing about Djokovic relative to 2018 Sakib is that, you know, you know, you know how you have the five stages of grief, you know, bargaining, anger, denial, acceptance, uh, you know, those various stages, you know, in terms of psychology. Uh, Djokovic has moved through his own kind of five stages of psychology, you know, from total uncertainty, uh, and anger at the French Open when he lost that match to Marco Cecchinato, which he shouldn't have lost. And he, 
he kind of he angrily in his press conference said, oh, I'm not going to play on grass, you know, and, and, and a lot of people thought that he was being serious. But I think you and I and, and the other people uh, we work with at Tennis with an Accent, you know, we knew that was just a throwaway remark, uh, not something to be taken seriously. But it nevertheless remains that he was a frustrated player uh, at, at the French Open. And then to, to see how quickly he moved to, you know, quality at Wimbledon, but not dominance. That, you know, he, he, he easily could have lost to Rafael Nadal in a classic semifinal, but he pulled himself out of tough situations. That's one way to win, you know, to win, to be on the edge, but rescue yourself when you're on the precipice. So he went from the anger at the French Open to winning on the edge at Wimbledon, you know, to, to, surviving the heat in the first week of New York when he looked, you know, on the verge of literally physically teetering and, and keeling over uh, in that first week. And then once he got through the, the weather, you know, then he dominated the final two rounds, uh, the semis against Nishikori, uh, and then the final against Juan Martin Del Potro. And then in Shanghai, you know, that was destroyer mode Djokovic from late 2015, early 2016. So, in just a, in the span of just a few months, Djokovic has gone from total uncertainty and anger and frustration uh, and not wondering when his slump would end to being, you know, God mode. And uh, in, in just a few months, you know, usually that kind of evolutionary process takes a lot more time to unwind and eventually work your way from one position to another. Djokovic has traveled that enormous distance in such a short period of time, it has really been breathtaking to watch. And it speaks to the kind of champion it is. It also speaks to just how comfortable he is and has always been with Marion Vida. You know, he made that coaching change in the spring, and then as soon as that coaching change was made, everything that was wrong about his tennis, you know, very consistently became right. You know, it didn't, it didn't immediately click into place in May or early June. But again, it, it really wasn't all that long before he was playing, you know, top shelf tennis and then polishing that top shelf tennis into, you know, an even higher realm of tennis, you know, this virtually untouchable level of play that we saw at the end of the U.S. Open and throughout Shanghai. Okay. So, Matt, I think we're pretty close to the end of uh, the show, at least, you know, the time we have on air. We have a couple of minutes left. So, Let's round it up with a couple of uh, interesting tidbits. Uh, why don't you tell me what are the couple uh, interesting stories on the men's side outside of the top, uh, you know, the top names that we've discussed. For me right now, the latest development is, uh, number one, uh, Andre Agassi is trying his hand at coaching again with Grigor Dimitrov. Uh, they are in Paris, and Dimitrov still has, you know, current coach, so again, that could be another entourage in, in the making, depending on, you know, what they decide to do. That's pretty – I didn't see that coming. Uh, neither did I see Djokovic Agassi coming, but, with, you know, after Djokovic, I didn't see him pairing with Dimitrov. And uh, and the other one is uh, – I know you laugh at this, but I'm amazed at the loss of form of Luca Pui. The guy is so talented, but he cannot win a match. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so over to you for the last minute. What are some of – the you know more intriguing or interesting you know st- stories for you of the season. I just want to tell our audience before I give the answer that you know don't 
don't fall in love with French tennis players. You will be disappointed. You will be setting yourself up for heartbreak. It's, it's just not a good thing to do, except if you focus on Davis Cup and France will put, France and Puy, uh, and others will, will face Croatia in the Davis Cup final at the end of November. So that, that's something to look forward to. But in regular tour play, French players have been such consistent sources of disappointment over the years. Uh, my tidbit, Sakib, Marius Kopil. So for those who don't know him, uh, he is a, a Romanian player who, uh, had, had, had played, you know, fewer than 30 main draw ATP tour matches coming into the Basel 500 point tournament a week ago. And that's, of course, Federer's home tournament, which Federer won. So Kopil made the final of that tournament and he gave a good battle to Federer, lost a first set tiebreaker, lost a close second set, put up a great fight. He had the time of his life. He beat good players to get to that final too. He beat Sasha Zverev, and then later in the uh, in the semifinals and earlier in the week he had beaten Marin Cilic. So he beat two really really good players to get to the final. There are dozens of Marius Kopils on the ATP and WTA tours. Players who can hit a ball really hard, uh, can can unload all sorts of wondrous shots from every spot on the court but they just have trouble replicating those shots. You know, they're so talented, they're so dynamic, but being consistent and knowing when to pull the trigger, knowing when to hit the big shot, knowing when you need to hit that slice backhand just to kind of buy some time and reset the point, that is such a constant struggle for dozens of of very talented players on tour. So Kopil finally seemed to have the light turn on. Uh, And again, he's 28. Anyone else recall other 28 or 29, 30-year-olds finally learning how to play tennis at a higher level? Stan Wawrinka, you know, four years ago. We even mentioned him earlier in this show. You know, the light went on for him at age 28, and he's, he's remade his career. He's going to be a Hall of Famer based solely on what he did at age 28 or later. Kevin Anderson at age 32 making his first ATP Finals appearance uh, after a, a sensational 2018 season. So Kopil finally coming around, finally putting it together at age 28. He shows that it's never too late uh, to get started on the best tennis of your life. It's never too late to learn lessons and, and put together the kinds of weeks that give you larger paychecks and more rankings points and more of a chance to make your way on tour. So that was a really great story Pay attention to Marius Kopil tennis fans in 2019. All right, man, that was plenty, and I think everybody will enjoy the Kopil piece in the end. Uh, not so much the Luca Pui mentioned, but hey, uh, you know, I had to mention him. So anyway, I think we covered quite a lot, and that should do it for this show. And uh, till next week, it's bye from now. <laughs>